0: I think we cannot work without assumptions. That's a pretty clear thing uh, coming practically from all philosophical analysis since the turn of the last century. And that is also true for science. And I think uh, the most prevalent and probably also most powerful assumptions are the assumptions about uh, scientific naturalism or, or materialism, that uh, all basic principles in the world are actually material in nature and that from there we can derive everything else and otherwise we don't need anything more. That's the most prevalent and the most basic and also most powerful assumption I think.
1: That mm-hmm. the the, the bait of the universe is, is material as opposed to Kind of the panpsychism view of as opposed to
0: I don't know what maybe something completely different that shows up in both material and uh, <clears throat> mental or conscious uh events. That would be in my view a more natural assumption to make. But that is not the common stance.
1: Mm. I know that um generally I mean for, for my Research it wasn't meant to be this way, but it seems to have focused a lot on the near-death experience because there's so many people that have experienced this and come forward and are now more willing to put across their their experiences. But there are also, of course, a vast variety of different anomalous experience which doesn't seem to be explainable currently through the current um epistemology. I I've conf- I don't know the difference between epistemology and ontology. I say it's mm. very vague, but well, through it's, the-
0: it's simple. Epistemology is about how we know something about the world, and and ontology is about what we assume the world is made of.
1: So ontology is what we assume to be the base of reality as it is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I see. So so in that case, I'd say that the current ontology doesn't seem to be able to explain these anomalous experiences, near-death experiences, out-of-body experience, um, apparent cases of telepathy, but they don't seem to be taken seriously. I wonder why that is.
0: You wonder why they are not being taken seriously?
1: Yeah. I mean, they they are by a select few scientists, but in general, they're they're met with very strong disdain.
0: Well, that's exactly the point. I think the background assumptions that most scientists make about materialism and about how the world is constructed does not allow for such uh, experiences. They simply can't be explained or they can't be conceptualized within a framework of uh, materialist science. So there are two options. You either have to change the framework or you deny the, the experiences. And denying the experiences is always <clears throat> the easier and the, the, let's say, more natural reaction towards them. And that is what happens in the scientific community. Scientists are not really, Uh, very fond of changing their assumptions. So they say, well, these experiences are either fraud or they are negligible or they uh, are fake or we don't want to do deal with them. Those are the major reactions and that's why they are not being taken seriously Mm. and I would opt for the contrary stance and say well folks these experiences and these data are around and they are powerful enough to be taken seriously so we need to take them seriously, and that leads us to uh, look for a different framework for science.
1: Mm. One of the books I'm working through currently um, in the meantime is The Self Does Not Die by mm-hmm. uh, Titus Rivers and others. Yeah. Um, and to me, it seems incredible that there's so many experiences with ver- uh, veridical, objective perception at yes. times when the brain isn't functioning to the level that we assume consciousness is, is available. Mm-hmm. that it seems incredible that people c- don't seem to regard that as, as reasonable evidence because the nature of it's anecdotal or it's, um, regarding meta-analyses. I, I agree with s- you. I don't it's see incredible. how that's not taken. Yeah, it is. So I wonder. It,
0: it just testifies to the power of, of the, of the conceptualization and the background assumptions. They are very powerful. Hmm. If you don't have a theory and if you don't have a theoretical model, to see and explain uh, phenomena. You simply don't see them.
1: I mean, the most common explanation is the uh, dying brain hypothesis or the fact that I
0: know, um, yes, I know. Yeah,
1: The fact that these experiences take place as a result of the patient, while semi-conscious, or at least the brain is still working, hearing conversation or picking up auditory stimuli or whatever else and creating a a mental image. Mm-hmm. Of what experience? I mean, what does that explanation mean to you? I
0: don't think <clears throat> you can use that explanation for all of the experiences that are recorded in the literature. It may be able to explain the odd one, but not all of them, because, as you rightly said, some of these uh, experiences they contain uh, information that we technically would call non-local information. So about things that are not present, about things uh, even the people around would not be able to know. And the waking up hypothesis or the uh, implicit cognition hypothesis uh, would not cover these. And apart from that, I think there there are a few uh, well-documented experiences in the literature that show a clear difference between the very strange phenomenology of waking up, which seems to be rather more uh, disjoint, hallucination-like, and the very clear, precise perception that happens uh, during those near-death experiences. And I think the differentiation of this phenomenology is clear enough to make clear that it that the waking up or the dying brain hypothesis alone uh, is not a good explanation. Another point is, if if it were true that uh, these near-death experiences are just a kind of soothing mechanism of the dying brain for itself, as it were, right? That's what some people say. Hmm. Then it is very difficult to understand why not everybody should have them. But the uh, study that Pim van Lommel did, which was a a very uh, careful prospective documentation of more than 300 cases in all Dutch hospitals, shows that only about 17% of the people do have these experiences. So it would not make sense to uh, call this a natural phenomenon if it is only natural for about a, a fifth of the population that is mm. having these experiences, or is, is actually dying, or is in the danger of dying,
1: I suppose <clears throat> the the question to that as well is how many of these people do we know definitely did not have the experience, as opposed well, to if they had the experience and then, similar to dreams, we forget or the memories. Well, that and...
0: that is, I think that question is answered by Pim Van Lommel's study. About seventeen percent did have this experience because. These people were asked quite quite soon after they were resuscitated about their experience. And of course, they might have forgotten about it. But then, again, it would not be a very powerful experience if they had forgotten about it. So it seems that only <clears throat> a little bit less than a fifth of the people who are resuscitated have such experiences.
1: Mm. And it seems we've, we've gone into near death, which it always happens with these talks I always end up talking about near death experiences. I'm sorry, this is supposed to be about your report, but I mean near death experiences seem just so interesting to me. and They seem to be kind of the the yeah, main, sure.
0: yeah. mm-hmm.
1: the main area of this. So let's go back to your report because, as I say, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to post this report as much as possible because okay. it is a very important document. Um, so yes, this is an important point. The large database of parapsychology and anomalous condition uh, can cognition research um there is a lot of of um of data surrounding various paranormal uh conditions such as telepathy Mm -hmm. um and i know a big advocate of that is rupert sheldrake who does a lot of research into this sort of thing Mm -hmm. um and dr sheldrake unfortunately is again seen as kind of a, a heretic yeah, and uh, everything concerning telepathy or paranormal is classed, and I hate the word pseudoscience, mm-hmm. and I hate the word <clears throat> woo even more. Um, so the data, though, apparently is very statistically relevant to suggest that these phenomena is, yes. do occur. So, is that the, what kind of studies have been done, and what what's the relevant of the of the data?
0: Well, there are uh, there are various uh, experimental paradigms that have been conducted over the last forty or so years, and there is a recent uh, meta—it's uh, a recent survey of meta-analyses that Edsel Cardenia published, which I've refer- referenced in the report that pulls them all together. And there is a, a long series of dream telepathy studies that are studies that have been conducted in the 70s and 80s, mostly. <clears throat> there are also some newer ones, but most of them have been uh, uh, published then. These are studies where people were sleeping in a lab and other people had to, in inverted comma, send them information like uh, images or uh, pictures from, 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 from films. And... The people were then woken up and described their dreams or whatever happened in their, in their mind while they were sleeping. And then what they described was rated by uh, external raters, and that compared to the material that the senders uh, were trying to send. This uh, shows significantly more uh, material that was, or, or affinity to the material that was being sent. Than by chance, and the meta-analysis of that again is is very significant. The effect sizes are not very big, so we have to be clear about the difference between effect size and significance. The significance is the statistical, um, the statistical measure of whether something is happening by chance or not, and all these uh, meta-analyses are statistically very significant. Just a, a few have a very, uh, very uh, marginal significances of of uh, one in thousand, but most of them are in the in the order of ten to the minus six or ten to the minus nine in terms of probability. So that it's very improbable that these effect sizes would have been uh, reachable by chance. And the effect size is the measure of how big the effect is, right? Mm-hmm. And they are comparatively small, which I'm not surprised about because we are looking across the board of people and we are looking across various uh, paradigms. And so they are always comparatively small. So you would be able to say, well, the effect sizes are negligible. That's probably true. But the fact that they are there at all is significantly uh, more probable by a systematic effect than by chance. That's what these meta-analyses say. And so I would say we should take them seriously. And then there is a series of other paradigms like um, a Gansfeld research, which is also an interesting paradigm where people, this is similar to dream telepathy, only that people are not dreaming, that are receiving visual imagery information. They are sitting in a relaxed chair and uh, are being, <clears throat> they are being put in what is called a Gansfeld. So they are they are looking at uh, a visual field that has no um no contrast, and they are listening to pink noise, which is no acoustic information. And in that field, they are just giving out their mentation, whatever comes to their mind. And and that is that is then also again put into relationship to what other people in other rooms are trying to transmit, whereby transmit and send is always to be heard in in inverted commas, because we don't know whether there is any transmission or whether it's another process. And again, this is a very powerful and very strong effect. And so there are various uh, such paradigms that have been researched and to my knowledge. All paradigms, if they are being uh, meta-analyzed, have a strong, significant effect with uh, effect sizes around a tenth or a 15th of a standard deviation so the effect sizes are small but they are all highly significant
1: so they certainly warrant further investigation regardless of the small effect size I would I would say be- I would say they warrant further
0: investigation and but the point is more like uh, it should it should set us thinking that uh, uh, the current model of science is actually not able easily to accommodate that. It is possible, we sh- we've shown that with uh, with a couple of theoretical papers, but the, the very crude, let's say Newtonian uh, materialist model is not uh, able to accommodate these effects. So we would at least have to expand this model a little bit further to allow for what technically is called non-local effects, that is, effects that are not transmitted by our known physical signals. The way how we try to conceptualize that is saying, by saying <clears throat> there is likely another process similar to what we know from quantum theory as entanglement effects, but these effects are likely uh, more general, are systemic, Not physical in nature, not necessarily, but systemic. So whenever you have a certain setup of the system, you may probably be able to create this kind of relationship that allows for that information to be shared, as it were. It is as if you have a shared field of information that various people can have access to without there being any signals or any transmission or so, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. It does. I, so I'm, having not been trained in science or philosophy, it's, it's difficult to get your head around for, for the labor. It sense. is but difficult. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's even difficult for scientists, to be
1: fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I must be doing OK, then. <laughs> OK, uh, brilliant. So it says here as well, another point, um, an increasing number of open-minded scientists are already researching these frontier areas. And, and for those that, that don't know, I'm taking these points directly off the summary Galileo report, uh, which summarises the the arguments. Um Many would say that that's not the case. That the majority of, of scientists are just not taking this this kind of thing seriously, and would have you suggest that any anybody that does are pseudo scientists or yeah, I mean not this them. is,
0: but that's not an argument. That's just polemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can always call someone a pseudo scientist. And that is then just a derogatory term, without having to deal with the with the facts and the arguments. And I don't think that's uh, a very honest style of discussion.
1: No, but it is an argument that you see f- oh, way over the top on on, especially well, online.
0: Mean, it's, it's used a lot. I agree. Yeah. And it's actually an argument that uh, is used so that people don't have to. Uh, some further thinking. I mean, there is a, there is a famous, there is a famous um, sociologist of knowledge knowledge Ludwig Fleck, who studied uh, how scientific facts come about. and if you want to summarize his findings, you can say a scientific fact is uh, is the agreement of scientists to stop to stop thinking and that is what is being being done here. People just stop thinking and refuse to think further or to reopen the box to think about what is in it. And Mm. then you put a stamp on it and say pseudoscience, occultism, esotericism, you name it. That is not an argument. It's just a derogatory term. Mm.
1: I think in my opinion as well, regarding to scientific facts, I would say that a fact is not a definite established truth. It's an agreement, as you say, yeah. that has the most evidence currently to support it but that doesn't mean that that can't change as we ex- develop ex- further That's evidence. exactly
0: the point point. and what is even more important is a, f- a fact, a scientific fact is only an empirical uh, set of data together with a theoretical understanding. We, we do have uh, empirical facts and data that do not come with a good uh, theoretical understanding, For instance, all these anomalous cognition things, which I mentioned, they belong to that category. And because we don't have a good scientific understanding of the theory behind it, we cannot claim that these are scientific facts. They are just empirical anomalies. But empirical anomalies have to be taken seriously in order Hmm. to advance our understanding of science. Yes.
1: There's one thing I wanted to ask. I I, um, asked David Loriman, but of course, this is your publication and you'd know more about it. It's regarding something in the main report that I didn't fully understand. I can get it out of this drawer. So I'm a pile of other books. Right. Um, it was regarding um, a model that you created to explain the connection of, of body and mind. Uh, this page here. and uh, Yeah, okay as i say you know this was very difficult for me to understand i was just wondering if you could kind of clarify
0: well it is actually it is difficult and um i try thank you um we try to conceptualize causes in our in the current uh, scientific world world model as signals so something that comes along and hits something else like billiard balls right so that you, you always have have some contact and then something happens and that produces another contact or another interaction and something else happens so you have a chain of causes that at least theoretically is unbroken and goes through with contiguity from from the beginning of the cause to the end of the effect right that is how we conceptualize causes that's what i call a signal theory of of cause and effect it goes back to to uh, Hume, at least, and maybe other people. And it, it's the way how science conceptualizes uh, a course, right? In our, in our normal, and that is what we call a local cause. It's local because you have a signal. And that signal travels with a specific speed, the speed of light, OK? So if you want to, to uh, produce any effect in this world, you have to have a signal. So if I switch off my computer here, then uh, the current would be broken and the image would be gone here and you would not be able to hear me and I would not be able to see you. The the cause being, I interrupt uh, the sequence of signals uh, that is mediated by the electric circuit Mm -hmm. and in fact by photons. Okay. So these are local causes. Now I'm saying, in order to understand all these effects like Uh, parapsychological effects or other uh, consciousness mediated effects, we will very likely need a a model of non-local causes, of causes that are not mediated by such signals, but are nevertheless regular. And that's very important to understand. So there is no signal transmitting those images, say, in dream telepathy studies, but there is a causal sequence which is due to a non local type of cause, right? Yeah. And now, when you look into science, whether there is a model or there is a template for non local causes, then you find it in the quantum theoretical formalism, which has been known since 1935 when uh, Schrödinger discovered that and published uh, it under the name of entanglement. Schrödinger pointed out that if you have a, a twin system, Twin quantum system, and you describe it with one uh, with one equation, one Schrödinger equation. Then what actually happens is that if you do something to one part of the system, the other part of the system reacts as it were instantaneously without any signal traveling between them. That is called that is what is uh, what is called uh, quantum non locality, or sometimes also Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen entanglement, or whatever. There are various names for it. But it always means there is no signal conveying that cause. And so
1: so just so I'm, I'm with you. So if you've got uh, two particles that are uh, joined informationally and you change the, the information of in one, one, one yeah. particle, the other particle instantly changes, and that's regardless of distance? Exactly, as as and aware.
0: regardless of time. That's very and important. regardless of time. That Absolutely. is both, it's both working spatially and temporally. That has been theoretically shown for a long time. Now, this is in physics proper. This has been proven experimentally to be true. Okay, so in physics proper, there is no doubt about uh, the factuality of this. There is discussion whether the whether you can have different types of understandings for that, but we leave that aside for for the moment. There is, it's physically speaking, it's an established fact in physics proper. Okay. Now, very important is uh, the step from physics to general systems. Because what we are saying, it's not just me, I developed that together with physicists, that model. What we are saying is such a type of non-local causality or non-local correlation or non-local entanglement might also happen in other systems that are not strictly physical. If the same formal Requirements are the same formal um, preconditions are met, and that is the abstract uh, formulation in the uh, report. And the image you were referring to that image is just describing the abstract requirements for generalized entanglement, as we call it. Okay, Mm -hmm. and the abstract requirements are that you have one system, okay, one system that joins together. Subsystems, and this one sub this one big system can be described by a variable or a or an observable, as it is technically technically called. That means a, a description, and that this description is incompatible or complementary to descriptions of the subsystems. All right. All right. So whenever you have that, formally speaking, the uh, the model would assume that non-local correlations are being set up between these sub-parts of the system. Now, you could, for instance, say that community, connectedness, is a a global description of the system, and separation, or individuality, is a description of the subsystems. And these right. two descriptions separation or individuality and community or connectedness would be incompatible descriptions. That would be one way of analyzing that. And there are various other ways of analyzing uh, such systems. And when you do that, you you come to understand that perhaps <clears throat> such a generalized entanglement correlation might be actually much more common than we we assume it is. And if that is true, Then we have a very rational understanding of how such phenomena as for instance uh, telepathy clairvoyance um, even precognition could happen because entanglement relations can also happen across time
1: Mm -hmm. as you say very difficult
0: it is difficult and it's a different way of thinking about things Mm. i mean it took me quite a, a few years to get my head around that and so I'm not expecting people to understand that within 15 minutes. But uh, what is necessary to understand is that there is actually a rational way of describing that. Whether it's true is another matter. We have to discuss that and we have to uh, make further experiments in that and so forth. But there is a rational way of doing that. It's just one way. There are other ways of doing that as well. And it shows if you are willing, you can actually accommodate these phenomena within a scientific description of our world. The only thing you have to do is let go of a purely localist, materialist framework. That you have to let go. Of.
1: Which, as we say, is based on assumptions that yeah. are made, and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that can't be escaped. Okay, brilliant. I'll probably have to watch this again a few dozen times to really get to grips with what you're saying. <laughs> but... Um, but I, I understand kind of the, the framework. It's much easier hearing it from you than reading it. I guess that's just yeah. the way I the way I learn. Um, so I appreciate that. Thanks for clarifying. So um, we'll keep going with with the report itself. So what is kind of your aim for the report?
0: Well, my aim for the report is actually very modest. I would I would be happy if young people take it up and read it, and know and understand that what they are being taught that science is about is only part of the, of, of the whole story. That more uh, advanced scientists that have always been thinking this is all bullshit start thinking and maybe think, well, maybe it's not all bullshit. And that people start to um, discuss, consider, think about uh, a broadened view of science. That is my that is my aim. It would be starting a discussion. It would be starting a discourse on 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 those assumptions, so that uh, young people who want to do something else are not being uh, counselled to to not do that because it's unscientific. That older people who are being approached by young people. Would be a little bit more careful in saying things like "this is all pseudoscience" or "this is bullshit," but are open and and discuss with their with their young tuties how to go about that type of thing, and yeah. maybe that some schools and some universities open the odd summer course or the odd uh, postgraduate course to advance a more a broader uh, a broader methodology.
1: Mm. And I would agree that's an incredibly important thing to do because what the scientific community, it seems, is lacking is skepticism towards its own (laughs) paradigm. There's certainly a lot of skepticism towards this fringe science, as you Mm can see, with, um, and it's a shame, the likes of Rupert Sheldrake, who Mm -hmm. the response to him and folks like Eben Alexander Mm -hmm. um, will very strongly put off anybody to want to look into this kind of subject seriously Mm -hmm. and put it forward. To be met with that sort of criticism, you don't you don't really want that. Um and it's a shame I because agree, yes. I think it's very important that science as a as a process, not as an established lifestyle, but as a process of discovery needs to needs to look at fringe
0: mm-hmm.
1: topics. Well, and
0: I, I completely agree because if you look into the history of science, progress was always made when uh phenomena on the fringe were being taken seriously and put into the into the focus of the mainstream community that is how historically uh scientific progress has always happened hmm. i mean there were always also fringy phenomena that turned out to be fake that is therefore it's quite it's quite uh natural to be careful and skeptic, skeptical sceptical about these i would I would agree to that But in general terms, the heuristic, so the methodology, methodological approach should be to look at fringe phenomena more carefully, because that is where the progress happens.
1: Hmm. And all these fringe ideas that are seen initially as wacky or similar to what lunatics would, would, would think of. This is how new discoveries begin, and it's important to be able to have these dreams.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's not always the case, but very often and some, well, sometimes. And and even if it's only the case, sometimes it's worth our while.
1: Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. It may be one in a hundred, but that one in a hundred could be an incredibly yeah. important discovery. In regards to the, to the report, I think the most important thing that you mention, and the most important thing that sh- people must consider about this report, is that These anomalous experiences and phenomena that that question the current dominant materialistic paradigm of science do happen, regardless of whether they should or should not, according to our current materialistic paradigm. They do happen, and there's no point in denying that they do happen. Mm -hmm. The question is, do we do what most scientists do and approach it with this materialistic background assumption that it must be caused by brain phenomena or delusion or do we approach it with a more open mind to other possible explanations Mm -hmm. that perhaps there's something that we don't understand i mean the me being focused mainly on life after death the big question for me is the connection between mind and brain yeah i mean that's a big
0: question anyway
1: yeah of course the um hard problem how does Mm -hmm. non-conscious matter give rise to consciousness if indeed it does i don't think it does according to the data i've seen i see is it more more of a filter mm-hmm. of some unknown force that we don't know about yet but the problem is because we can't describe that force it's not really seen as
0: mm-hmm. relevant
1: what's kind of what's your opinion on the brain mind relationship
0: well that's what i've tried to describe briefly in the report i think there are various stances that you can take but the the probably the the most the the minimal consensus model which I've tried to describe is that you that you leave uh, that you let consciousness or uh, mind phenomena be at least as real as material phenomena so I like to say consciousness is co-primary to matter so both are primary in a sense and maybe there is an underlying unity which we don't have access otherwise than through material and uh, conscious phenomena, which we don't know. But these two are probably uh, co-primary, and I I like the expression that Niels Bohr coined uh, saying that these two are complementary, so they are in a way opposite or, or opposing ways of describing reality, which kind of contradict each other, but they are still necessary to describe the whole, namely the human being. And I would say that's a minimum consensus model. It would be possible to say, well, there is probably both realities, how they are really united in the in the very basic fabric or ontology of the world we don't know. There are various models which I'm not going to into now, but there are models around, but all of them would Uh, require consciousness to be its own ontologically um, based reality. How these two are then connected is quite another question, which we don't know. Connected they are, otherwise we wouldn't be able to uh, use our brains and our bodies and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. But And it's quite understandable that one way of of trying to understand that it's just looking at one part of the equation, namely the physical and material events. But I don't think that's enough. So I think it would be sufficient to say, we don't know how these two realities or modes of reality are connected, but they are in some way co-primary. And what you just mentioned, that maybe our brain is a filter for something that is much larger, might be a, a good heuristic to, to uh, progress research. Because, I mean, it's a little bit like our TV sets. Uh, they are not producing the images. They are just transmitting the images we are seeing. And maybe the same is true for our brain. Maybe our brain is just a transmitter system that is somehow uh, taking in what consciousness produces, for instance. I don't know. I mean, these are all just models and ideas, but I think we need a minimum consensus model that allows consciousness its own ontological status.
1: Hmm. So how would you define consciousness then as um, a consciousness that, it is, that it is its own ontological entity? <clears throat> would you, how would you differentiate between consciousness and, for example, the experience of human mind and human memory? Or is there no differentiation
0: well it this is really the most difficult question you can ask and i'm not sure i can answer it because as aristotle already said a uh, full definition is only possible after full understanding and we don't have a full understanding so consciousness is probably uh the experience of of something of myself of the world out there of uh some experiential quality like pain or joy or a a color or the taste of some something Uh, and mental phenomena are just part of that.
1: Hmm. So I think the way it's commonly kind of described in more spiritual and, and not so much religious, but spiritual backgrounds is the witness to everything that occurs in your and life that
0: might be one way of looking at it that might mm. be one way of looking at it uh maybe that witness consciousness is some part of it and maybe it's something different we
1: don't know mm. and that's the that's the important thing i think is that we don't know and we know i think claim we should, that...
0: yeah i think we should be open to the fact that we don't know this and there may be some time to come until we know and maybe we don't even know <laughs> mm. <laughs>
1: I think a lot of things, especially when it comes down to the single most important thing for us in the universe, consciousness, maybe these are beyond our capability, because in order to be able to measure and and witness consciousness, one has to be outside of consciousness.
0: Um yeah or inside maybe you know i mean <laughs> we 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 make conscious experiences all the time, and that's the point, even the materialist model is only possible because some consciousness is actually th- cooking that up and and saying that, so hmm. consciousness is the precondition for everything i mean that was the that was the uh, discovery of the phenomenological tradition, Russell and others. they made clear that everything that we see explain do is based on conscious experience so that's a kind of given to us we cannot go behind that we can try to understand and explain it but we can't go behind it it's just a given
1: yeah because it's the foundation of everything that we experience yeah so what would you say um, to the fact that um, and it's true that there is a lot of evidence to support the theory or the hypothesis that brain creates consciousness um for example we can see that there are very tight correlations between uh, an experience and the brain we can record um brain waves we can tell when somebody's dreaming when someone's unconscious when somebody's experiencing an out-of-body experience like with olaf Blanky's or blank i don't know how to pronounce his name with his experiences or his investigations um stimulating the uh, temporal junction I can't remember but um, and given these patients the experience of, of floating outside their body they can reproduce at least part of that by stimulating a certain brain region mm-hmm. and all this is kind of it is strong evidence to suggest that the brain is the producer of consciousness um, but to me that's all down to the interpretation as opposed to the raw data itself but what would you say to them to the large amount of information or the large amount of evidence that we have?
0: Well, I would agree there is a large amount of evidence that there is a very strong correlation between uh, brain events and conscious events. That's quite clear. But that does not make the brain the producer of consciousness. It just says there is a very strong correlation, full stop. And as everybody knows, correlation is not causation. It could be the other way around. It could be uh, also consciousness causing the brain doing things. I mean, there is no reason why this should be a one-way relationship. So if there is causation, uh, there, if there is correlation, it means there is correlation, not more. Mm-hmm. And there is no causal theory around that really explains how the brain is actually producing this consciousness. There is a lot of thinking about uh, large networks producing consciousness. That may be true or may not be true. But if it were true, I'm wondering why would why would the uh, cerebellum not be conscious? There are a lot of connections in the cerebellum, even more neurons. Why is it not conscious? Why is the immune system not conscious? We have huge number of cells that are all interrelated in our immune system. Why are our gut microbiomes not conscious? There are a, a, a power of ten more a uh, factor of 10 more uh, uh, bacteria in our, in our body and we have cells. So why are they not conscious? They have very tight interrelations. Why is the internet not conscious? There are huge numbers of computers connected. We have no uh, indication that the internet is conscious. So it seems to be something else than just being connected and being uh, a strong network so i would say yes there is a very strong correlation but there is no causal theory and there is no evidence that it's causation
1: no but i think perhaps because there's no way that we can identify or or show consciousness as a separate entity by its nature of not being a physical object yeah. if that if that is the case the fact that we can't demonstrate that is perhaps why this causation theory is the most plausible and the most widely accepted currently?
0: Well, I think it's just most widely accepted because it's a very parsimonious and a very elegant uh, model, but it happens to be not supported well by evidence, I think, because the evidence which I cited in the report and which we've just discussed is not compatible with that type of view.
1: One area that I struggle to kind of rationalise About the um, separate consciousness from brain and the filter theory is experiences in which we are not conscious, deep sleep, general anaesthesia, being hit incredibly hard on the head, Mm -hmm. Um, periods where we are similarly unconscious. If consciousness is a separate entity which is filtered through the brain, then how come during those instances we have no experience?
0: I don't know. I mean, we have no experience of being asleep unless we dream. And we only dream uh, a certain amount of time. We know that. And the rest, we are unconscious during sleep. Why that is, I don't know.
1: No. Could it be um, that the the brain is kind of mediating our experience and when the brain is damaged, consciousness can't be accessed?
0: Could be. I don't know. I mean, we know that certain certain requirements seem to be necessary for consciousness uh, being experienced through our brain. So uh, certain thalamic circuits have to be activated. But even that is only, it's very strange, even those people who work with anesthesia, they cannot really say what is the the single necessary ingredient. It seems to be a very complex uh, interactions of various centers in the brain. So we we don't really know the, the the preconditions for consciousness, and why it should be that sometimes we are conscious and sometimes we aren't difficult to understand.
1: Mm. And it's it's experiences like that that do back up the um the emergence hypothesis. But to me, yeah. and I'm I'm sure you'd probably agree that regardless of this, there are many many experiences and many phenomena that that theory shouldn't accommodate and yet happen exactly and this that's that, what that's exactly the questioned. point hmm.
0: that's exactly the point so i'm saying because these experience and these phenomena happen and because they are not uh, compatible with the current model we have to re- rethink that model very simple i mean one can of course choose and say i'm not interested in these experiences i'm working on the established model fair enough i don't think it's a very clever move but it's fair enough
1: The problem is, if if you ignore these experiences and continue working on the standard model, if that standard model turns out to be incomplete, Mm -hmm. then you're reinforcing something that isn't 100% correct. That's exactly
0: the point. Mm.
1: So, there have been many attempts to explain... In physical terms, what happens during near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, astral projection, which is the same as out-of-body experience, in my opinion, um, and telepathy and remote viewing, all, all these phenomenological, speak with phenomenological experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of any materialistic explanation that seems reasonable to explain any of these phenomena, or
0: no? The only, the only, the only one that comes remotely close to it is the is uh what I think it's Peter Marsh I'm not quite sure uh, s- someone by the name of Marsh has published and that is uh that it is a waking up experience uh that is happening but as we explained or as we discussed previously that does not cover the full phenomenology because there is differences between waking up and uh near-death experiences so i don't think this is a viable theory it may may be covering some some phenomena but not all of them and otherwise or other than that i'm i don't know of any uh serious theory that would be able to explain these
1: mm. and there are many the, the dying brain hypothesis the uh, anoxia lack of oxygen hypothesis yeah, as as
0: i said if that were true we would expect that to happen much more often than it and then near-death experiences actually yeah.
1: do happen yeah and regardless of all that experiences still take place where veridical perception takes place far removed from yeah. the location of the physical body so that kind of undermines all the other everything else yes, and it's we, just
0: we had that mm-hmm.
1: and it seems to be just a case of people accepting that it happens Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I don't understand how any scientist can not take that seriously and cannot see that that is evidence of... That is
0: because you are young and idealistic. That's why I don't understand that. But mm-hmm. it is a very, it's a very simple fact. It's just what happens. As I explained earlier, if you don't have a theory, if you don't have a world model that can accommodate such experiences, then you don't see them. And my standard my standard example for that is the historical example of william harvey discovering the heartbeat right william harvey was a physician to the english king and he he did not believe the standard theoretical model of how the circulation comes about that standard model derived from aristotle was that uh, circulation comes about because the heart is a convection warmer warms the blood it goes up to the brain the brain is a cooler goes down and so we have circulation explained that was how Up till 1600, roughly, uh, circulation was explained. And in such a model, a heartbeat does not exist because a heart is not a pump. It's a circulation warmer, Mm. right? So people were actually unable to hear the heartbeat. When Harvey published that around 1623, there was an outcry going through Europe saying, There is no one in Venice who can hear a heartbeat. When I heard that for the first time, I didn't believe it. So I looked up the sources, and it's actually true. It's written literally in a book that was published in 1648. There is no one in Venice who can hear a heartbeat. It seems quite incredible, right, that such Mm. a natural thing uh, like a heartbeat was denied by knowledgeable people in the beginning of the 17th century. But they did. And why did they do that? Because they had a theory in which a heartbeat did not occur and was not necessary. So they didn't actually hear that heartbeat until you had a model. And Harvey provided that model by a vivisection and looking at at open dogs and animals, uh, seeing the pumping heart. He said, the heart is a pump. Therefore, there must be a sound coming from that pumping. And so he had a model and the heartbeat was a natural consequence mm. of that so if you don't have a model you cannot see the phenomena it's quite as simple as that and because people don't have a model they don't see the phenomena and they don't take them seriously
1: this is a big testament to the fact that the human mind and the human intellect can just be completely fooled <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even by the most intelligent people on the planet okay brilliant so let's, let's finish off just by asking the the big question for for my research okay which is death what in your opinion does the research suggests is our experience after the death of the body
0: i'm not sure we can really say anything about that because all the data we have is from people who have been sort of dead right they haven't been really dead they've been sort of dead and maybe half an hour dead, or 20 minutes dead, or 45 minutes, and then being resuscitated and coming back to life. We know that death is a very gradual process. The body and the organs can be kept viable for quite a long time if they have the right environment. And so we don't know about real death, and I don't know uh, whether it makes sense to talk about that because there is no scientific evidence for that.
1: Hmm. And I like the way um, Dr Jan Holden summarises it when she says um, that all the evidence of near-death experience and other phenomena surrounding death comes from reports of people who, as you say, were by definition not dead, but as close as we can possibly get to being dead. Mm-hmm. No heartbeat, flatline brain activity, mm-hmm. um, and who then returned. So we can certainly say what happens up to the point of where we can measure at death, mm-hmm. but to what happens afterwards we don't know. for eternity, we don't know. We can guess. Exactly. And we can say that it seems that consciousness can survive uh, in a brain state where it shouldn't survive, mm-hmm. but what that means beyond that, we can't say. And I think that's the best way to put it because that's the honest way to put it.
0: I would I would agree with that, yes.